0: Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris with Sean O'Toole with Property Radar and this is episode 31. Today we feature Mike Cantu. He's one of probably the best known real estate investors in Southern California. He runs a a wholesale flip business as well as a sizable rental portfolio. And today we cover a lot of ground from his favorite uh, type of data that he, he uses to find the deals and the way he goes about doing it his mix of wholesaling versus what he holds and after 40 years, why he even still loves the game and so much more. You won't want to miss this week on the podcast. Mike, welcome to the show. First question, starting off. Why the game of real estate after all these years, why is real estate still awesome?
1: It's kept me from having a real job. It's kept me out of mainstream America I grew up with military discipline in a small house with nine people, and I just always wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, and that always conflicted with having a job, never been afraid of work, but uh, I just can't stand to be told what to do, and Early on, I was exposed to it. I bought the whole story, hook, line, and sinker. Didn't question a single bit of it. I knew every word was true. And all I had to do was stay on that escalator, and it will take me to the promised land.
0: Has it
2: worked out? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So how long ago did you start?
1: 39 years ago, Sean. I started in April of 1982. This is, I'm embarking on year number 39 of being a full-time real estate entrepreneur and wow. a landlord.
0: So you've been through a few cycles and you're still in it. And it's what's fascinates me for some, it's a means to an end. And for you, you're hooked. It,
1: it, it's a passion. I, I, as I mentioned yesterday, Aaron, there's no doubt. I'm going to have to go through a 12 step program to get out of deal making. I, I wake up thinking about deals. I woke up really excited this morning. I closed a a deal yesterday. I got confirmation right at five o'clock and it's a keeper house. I don't keep much anymore. I've got plenty, all the rentals I need, but I thought, oh, this is a great house at a great price and a great location. I can't sell this. And first thing I thought this morning when I woke up, we closed it, it's mine. So yes, I still get really excited about doing deals.
0: Are you still actively marketing uh, for deals then?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. See, Kim has been with me. This is her 30th year of working with me. Wow. And as long as I, I tell her if she ever quits, I quit. And <laughs> she says, well, she's never going to quit. So I thought, okay, I'm in business still. So it keeps the marketing keeps Kim busy. Um, and she's always got the management side of things. And she's always busy all day, every day. And it works out for both of us. But yes, absolutely market. It's um, several different niche markets, and we can talk more about that if you want to go down that road as far as marketing goes. Sure, that'd be great. Let's do that. Okay, I I was going to say I I did make a few notes here. Um, On the marketing, of course, everything falls into one of two two categories, owner-occupied or non-owner-occupied. There's only those two categories, but in each of those categories, I don't mail to owner-occupied. I I buy houses, not homes. And I've always been much more comfortable dealing with anything other than a home, especially if there's kids involved. I would love to see every homeowner get top, top dollar and do the right thing. But as far as rentals and vacation property, stuff like that, all those are houses. That's just inventory. But within the non-owner-occupied, we have several sub-niches that we mail to And it's one of two approaches that's when you do a big mailer, I consider that like blind archery, just shooting arrows in the sky, hoping to hit something. And then the other one is when we're going after a very specific property, that's like a rifle with a scope, a totally different approach, a personalized letter making reference to the specific property and the details of it. So absolutely love marketing. I love coming up with new, trying new lists. And actually the one I just closed on yesterday came from a new lead source, which uh, on our first, first test drive of it, I got a great deal out of it. I thought, okay, that worked. Hmm. Keep on going.
2: Nice. Nice. I got to tell you, uh, don't get voted off real estate Island, which was a, I guess, a audio series you did. I don't know if you did it as a uh, text as well. I listened to it. Um, I still think is one of the best uh, like kind of uh, overviews and, and, you know, and, and part of it is, is you're a pretty funny guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, Sean. <laughs> I, I, I try and have some humor in there. I, I just, I, I don't want to be the monotone drone, um, put you to sleep. So nope, that's just me coming out in, those, in that. but. That was my big give back, Sean. I have been the recipient of some great information, but it was because I went searching for it. And I've always said, seek and ye shall find. Finding is reserved for the searchers. And for the people out there searching, I thought that's part of the cycle. Got to give it back. And favorite, one of the favorite things I own is a file in a file cabinet, which was a bunch of unsolicited letters from people that information from that course has changed their lives created a better future, made them some money, solved some problems. And I just love doing that. I, real estate such a neat vehicle to – wealth and retirement and i I love solving the challenges and the creative aspects of it most people and agents know two deals all cash or some money down and get a loan for the rest of it from the bank and that is just the very tip of the iceberg what what is possible in real estate and i love the creative stuff problem solving
2: yeah and i really loved your approach um You know, I think so many people are like trying to quote unquote, it's interesting what you're just talking about with homes versus houses, right? And you like dealing with the landlords, right? It's just a more professional. It's they're not losing something that's, you know, near and dear to their heart. It's just a business transaction. So I thought that was a really interesting um, um, point. And, but even in your, you know, one of the things that really stood out out of me in your, in your book series was just how you go about the negotiation. And it's not there's nothing in there about like trying to hide the value of the property or anything else. It's a very kind of methodical approach of just going through of, look, here's the expenses you're going to have in selling. And here's the advantage of selling it quickly. And these things all have value and it adds up and you end up with a good deal, but without, without trying to trick anybody.
1: Oh no, I, I like to put it out on the table. See, Sean, I don't want to do a deal if, When the dust settles, both sides aren't really happy about it. Unhappy seller prior to close of escrow remains an unhappy seller after close of escrow. And I like everybody to be smiling and just thrilled to be doing business together. And if I can accomplish that, great. If not, we don't do the deal. And back to the owner-occupied stuff, Sean. Early on, I I did buy several owner-occupied houses. But the problem I have is when I'm sitting at the kitchen table with the seller And they tell the circumstances to me, I can come up with at least, every time, at least three, if not four or five solutions. And the problem with that is solution number one and number two usually are not me, that there's a better solution. And I feel obligated to share that with people. Otherwise, I put it into the category of lying by omission, by omitting some key facts. And if I can't put everything out on the table, I'm going to have trouble shaving in the mirror. I got to be able to look at myself and like what I see. And if I don't disclose everything, it bugs me. So I I like everybody to know everything, my motive, where I'm at and what the plan is.
2: There's a lot of people who, who believe you can't make money, you know, buying houses, you know, unless you, you know, kind of get them well below market value. And that kind of implies, you know, cheating the person. There's a lot of, In fact, the press and and others out there kind of, you know, often insinuate that these flippers are out stealing homes from folks. And, you know, I'm sure that there are some bad actors out there that do that. But with 39 years of experience, I mean, you've kind of proved that's not necessary.
1: Oh, no, no, I'll knock on wood as I say it, but I I don't use litigation as a business tool like some people, and I try and stay out of court. I have very, very few disagreements with my tenants, with sellers, and it it can always be resolved in my experience. If you want it resolved, there's a way. I've yet to come to the scenario where I couldn't resolve a situation that somebody was unhappy with without going to court over it.
2: Right. It probably comes down to trust. Do you feel like uh, that's an important part of your
1: business up
2: front and the rest?
1: Absolutely, Sean. It's back to if I don't feel good about it. um, I've had people throw out a number and I've told them that's the wrong number, but there's more meat in that than that. And I just that's not the number I had in mind. And I can come up higher. And this is numbers I have. And this is the whole scenario here start at the beginning and work down to the net to you and it's quite my numbers are quite a bit more than you threw out there and i'm comfortable with this and so i it's kind of weird but at the same time when i leave i think i feel better i feel okay with it
2: you've actually negotiated them up
1: yes
0: <laughs> more than so.
1: that's <laughs> a weird <rare laughs> strategy it is weird strategy, but it's usually quite often it's an older person and they have one of what they're getting rid of. It's not like middle-aged person that's got a dozen or something. And when it's that scenario, you know, I got to step into my dad's shoes and I think, you know, he, he's got one and he's going to want to get as much as he can out of it.
2: Yeah. And it's going to make a meaningful difference in the, their life, probably that difference as well. So.
1: Oh, yes. And and I'm a firm believer in karma. What goes around comes around. And if I, I try, try, try to be a good person, do the right thing. And that's been a lifelong battle. And um, that was my intent when I woke up this morning. Have a good day. Do the right thing. Be a nice person and solve stuff. Don't do battle. See, that's a lot of people go into the marketplace with the mindset of they're going to compete and do battle. And <laughs> I have a complete opposite. I don't like competing. I like creating and I don't like doing battle. I like playing a game. So when I, I want to go create, I want to play a game and create, that's my attitude. And I stay away from the competitive arenas. Um, I haven't been in the multiple listing in years. Now my secretary Kim's in there every day getting comps, but I don't look for deals in there and um auctions haven't been around so most of the stuff i do once again is i'm creating an opportunity rather than going to look for an existing opportunity that multiple people are competing for so i want to create and be the only one there
0: that's good what's a what's a, your percentage uh, mix of business as far as flip um holding for yourself and then wholesaling to other uh, investors
1: Um, Aaron, I, in the last few years, I might keep one or two houses a year. And like I said, I've got a big pile and um, I'm very happy with it. Um, I did have a rule that if I took on something new, I was going to get rid of my least favorite properties, but it's been years since I've had a least favorite property. I like them all. And so the last few that I've kept, I've just expanded the pile a little bit more, but Deep down inside, first and foremost, I am a landlord. That's what I strived for. All I ever wanted was enough money coming in to where I got out of bed when I wanted, did what I wanted, and long ago surpassed that. But that's when I wake up in the morning, that's first hat I put on is my landlord hat, make sure everybody's up and running, solve the problems, and then I go into being a real estate entrepreneur.
0: So you're still actively marketing and the deals that you're able to negotiate, you end up, um, do you fix and flip any of those or it's all wholesaling?
1: Uh, occasionally, I pick and choose those battles carefully, Aaron. At the beginning of the year, I did a couple of flips, full rehabs, 50, 60,000 type rehabs, and but it, it all depends on the inventory that comes across my table. And I mean, I, in the last few years, I've, I've changed my job title. And I've downgraded myself to the real estate dumpster diver. I've came up with some real, (laughs) but there's a buyer for all of that stuff. And once again, it's all a math equation. And if the math works, there's a taker for it. But I, yeah, I dredge up some pretty uh, (laughs) interesting stuff. (laughs) <laughs> so that stuff absolutely wholesale. I try and avoid entanglements. Um I don't like dealing with the city any more than I have to. I'm pull a permit here and there, but to have structural plans, I try and avoid that. If, if it involves blueprints, I just as soon pass it on.
2: Hmm. Okay. Right. And let everybody work their niche. There's guys that are that are in this business that have a construction background and so it's better fit for them anyways, right?
1: Absolutely. My my buyer's list, I've always said my buyer's list, I'm like the shoe salesman. I know what my buyer's financial feet look like and what they're after. And so when the shoe comes across my desk, I know whose foot I'm going to try and put it on. That's the analogy I've always used that, um, yeah, there's a taker for everything out there under the great umbrella of real estate. What I do is just a very, very small percentage of what's available there. I mean, I, when people say real estate to me, I know the whole world is real estate, but uh, what comes to mind when I hear that word is entry level housing in decent to good neighborhoods. And I've always said that I am in the kindergarten of real estate playing in the sandbox. And I've always been comfortable there. And my friends have beaten me up for years and years, asking me when I'm going to step up that penny any game that I've played all these years and and tell them I sleep well I'm very comfortable with it I don't want to be out over the end of my skis wondering what my next move is I I like what I do
2: has how much has the mix between buying rentals and um, doing retail flips that are, you know, fully rehabbed and, and to end users and flips to wholesale sailors. How has that mix changed for you over the 39 years? Or has it been pretty consistent that you've done a mix?
1: In the last seven, eight years, Sean, I've expanded my territory. I've gone into Riverside County, which for 30 plus years, my marketplace was 30 miles long, 20 miles wide, just a big egg. And there was plenty of stuff in there. The 15 freeway was about a third of the way east into my marketplace. And my game plan was always to keep west of the 15 and use east of the 15 to earn the money to keep the other stuff. See, I I have a theory. It's called parts and tools. And every time I see a deal, the first thing that clicks, is this a part or is this a tool? And the parts are the pieces that you're assembling your retirement with, the good stuff, the stuff that you can't sell because you're not supposed to sell it. That when you see it, you think, oh, ooh, I want to keep this. This is a great asset, the good stuff and the good neighborhoods. And those are the parts. And Everything else is a tool, whether it's a wholesale deal, a retail deal, an interim rental, short term, long term, whether you're growing it up in value, amortizing down the debt. But the ultimate goal is to harvest the equity out of the tools and pay off your parts. And that was my theory with the 15 freeway. Grow up a bunch of stuff east of the 15, harvest it, pay off stuff west of the 15 freeway. So I love the parts and tools theory. And. I'm actually have another deal in escrow that I'm really excited about, came with a big slab of equity and a a long-term tenant. And I'm going to keep that. But I knew immediately that that ultimately is going to be a tool and I'll probably hang on to it for several years until something happens with the tenant. If he stays for 20 years, I may own it 20 years from now, but it's not something that is the cornerstone of my retirement. It's a tool to pay off something else.
2: So you're you're keeping it because it's got an existing tenant. You don't want to displace that tenant. So you're you're basically holding it to allow that tenant to to f- finish out their term, whatever term they want. There, and then at six, that point, it's not something you want to keep.
1: Well, there's there's a six figure, a nice six figure slab of equity in it, and it's a good solid house in a decent neighborhood. Or if I were to fix and flip it, I'm uprooting a long term tenant, which I've done before, but I prefer not to. But from the tax standpoint, if I hang on to it for a year, see, that falls into a category I call floating inventory. Over the years, I bought lots and lots of houses with other people's tenants in it. And if it's a decent house with a decent tenant, even if you're feeding a small negative, I've got to raise this guy's rent. But I figured if I left everything alone, that it might cost me a couple thousand dollars to control 150 plus in equity for a year or two, that it's a nominal amount. So it's not cash flow I'm looking for, it's equity preservation. And if I get it past the one year mark, I'm in a different tax bracket if I flip it. All right. Okay. Or I can or I can exchange out of it. There's a There's lot some of
2: complications around that, right? Like because if you're in the business of dealing properties, you you aren't your flips still considered ordinary income or do you just do it?
1: It like separate
2: entities or something?
1: Separate entities. If if there's a chance I'm going to keep it, it goes one place. And if I know it's going to be a flip, it goes elsewhere. Got it. Corp- that, that would be corporate versus LLC. So that's I, an
2: important I, thing for listeners just to pick up on, right? Like if you want to keep some and flip some and you're doing more than, I think it's five deals a year, you have to be very careful to keep those in two separate places. Otherwise, you're going to end up paying ordinary income, even though you've held it for a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Good point.
2: Yeah, that's 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 one that I missed early
1: on. Yep, <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, I. That's not a it.
2: that's not a happy call. What do you mean?
1: <laughs> right, right. Oh no, no. And, and so I two distinct entities. Actually, there's three entities there. My long term stuffs in one entity, and the flip stuff gets ran through a C corporation. Then there's an LLC for all of the not sure stuff that um, the interim stuff.
2: And then I did a lot of commercials, so I kept a separate entity for what I call "dirty dirt," right? So things that I bought at trusty sale that could end up having an environmental issue or something that uh, you know I didn't want to have contaminate all or everything else I own. So that's an important thing for listeners thinking about getting into this business, especially if you're going to use a a few different strategies. You you need to think through the tax and liability um, sides of that. So that's that's a good uh, a good little. Uh, side note we came across there
1: yes no i'm all, i'm always looking at the t- tax standpoint of things too and <clears throat> one of the things i realize and i'm focusing on now that that did help with the decision to keep the property i closed yesterday i've had some of these rentals 27 and a half years or longer and i'm losing some of my depreciation and i as that free ticket is shrinking that I thought, oh no, the goal for this year and next year, I need some new depreciation. And I want it to come with some very well located quality assets. Interesting. So, yeah. And so I, a few I,
0: angles I, there
2: to be playing.
1: Yeah, I, I never thought I would be this age and out looking for more rentals, but it's not for the income, not for the appreciation. It's for the for the I mean it's for the depreciation, not the appreciation.
0: So, in that case, are you looking to 1031 exchange into new great houses, or what are you thinking? Uh,
1: I, I'm looking at just acquiring them, Aaron. I, like I said, I, I, as I comb through my portfolio, there's some of the best advice I ever got was many years ago from John Schaub, and I think he said it like every year, get rid of your worst house, take it out to pasture, and shoot it and replace it with a better house. And eventually you will have no junk. And uh, 20 some odd years later, I think it was 2005, 2006, the market's going crazy. You just had to look at your watch to see what the value of the house was. And every day I would comb through the file cabinet, same file cabinets go, Nope, 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 nope. And I thought John was right. Eventually you will have no junk. And so I don't have anything I want to get rid of. So if I'm getting that depreciation, it's got to be buying new assets. So I think, okay, here I am in expansion mode again. And I've gone through expansion and contraction many times. And actually that's something I had a note on that I only have two kinds of days. Rarely. I might have one or two, maybe three neutral days a year, But within seconds of waking up, I immediately know, am I in expansion or contraction mode? And what I always fantasized about is being able to have five or six expansion days in a row and then a couple of contraction days to clean it up, some kind of method there. But they're random. But I acknowledge, am I in expansion or contraction? As soon as I opened my eyes this morning, I realized I'm all excited about my new purchase, ready to go slay the marketplace, and, I, and I'm i definitely in expansion mode today, <laughs> which most of the time I am, but occasionally I hit the um, contraction mode, and those are the days I don't want to talk to people. I want to clean up the mess, get organized, and wonder, what have I created here, and how do I control this thing?
2: That's awesome. That's a, that's a good, you know, because I, I do think, you know, if you never clean up, like in the software business, right, we just always create and we never go back and clean up, boy, it gets to be a mess after a while. So it's a very similar, similar thing. It's probably true of of all businesses, right? Sometimes you just need to go get all your ducks in a row. that's That's a really, I love the expansion contraction mode.
1: Yeah, it's some days I go into my office, like yesterday, and I thought, okay, I need a contraction day in here. I tell people I have a pilot's license. I pile it here. I pile it there. I make awesome piles, and pretty soon there's no room on my desk. And I thought, okay, yesterday I found myself organizing piles, thinking I'm going to have to acknowledge each one of these piles. There's a home for every one of these pages, but they just need to get there.
2: A pilot license. I love
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been an expert pilot for as long as I've been in business.
0: When it comes to being a landlord, what would you say is the average length of stay for your rentals?
1: I'm knocking on wood, but Aaron, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm got to be at 10 years plus.
0: Yeah. Uh, and what do you contribute that to? Is it the inventory you hold or how you take care of the tenants?
1: Multiple things. Absolutely. It's the house. Is it somewhere where they want to be? Is it a good house in a good neighborhood? All of my rents are under market um, in varying degrees. It depends. I was going to say I I do have a list. And if I raised my rents to market, the difference from what I collect is more than most people would be thrilled to retire on. But I, I have tenants. Okay. I have a house in Claremont that Came with a couple that had been there 31 years before I bought it as tenants. And I bought that in the year 2000. The husband passed away a few years ago, but Kate is still there. So my math tells me she's going on year 52 as a tenant in that house. And I'm fixing a house in Montclair that I bought 20 years ago. Sherry had been in that house 15 years before I bought it. And she's a wonderful tenant. So I have several tenants that had a long history before I came into the picture, and we passed the two-decade mark on several of those. And some of my tenants, um, say I bought a house in Claremont in uh, 1998. I remember I was on the phone and my other phone rang. I told my brother to answer it. He starts taking down information. At the time, I had a penny saver ad running, And then he hung up the phone and left. He came back a half hour later and said, want to buy a house in Claremont? It was a burnt house, but um, I ended up making a deal with him. He bought the house on my ad call and he fixed it up. And the same tenant I rented to in 1998 is still there. And they've done nothing but improve the house. Um, She got married. They've added patio covers and new driveways, stuff like that, where I think carry on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and how's that? How has that played out during COVID? You know, you hear a lot of landlords complaining that you know people have skipped, but your approach I to have landlord- one,
1: one tenant that went a wall. I had a couple of tenants, only two that even mentioned it, and I, I explained to them that this isn't a free ticket. That there will be a day of reckoning, and we have a very long history, and it might be difficult to find a better house for less money after all the dust settles here. And this is a temporary situation. where, And and I still firmly believe that. See, I've I've always, always tried to be the best landlord I could possibly be and fix stuff when it breaks. And every year has a theme to it. And this year is no different. This year actually started in November, the year of the water heater. I'll make water heaters deep in about three months. And they've gotten expensive, but I thought, okay, last year Prior to that, the previous 12 months was a year of the sewer mainline. I ended up replacing four sewer mainlines, jetted several other ones, had a septic leach lines replaced, and I thought, okay, before that, the previous before that was um central air. They were just blowing up right and left. And... There's always a theme to the year, and I think it's part of what happens. But the right attitude, I don't get mad when something happens. Even when it's a major, I think, okay, what's the right attitude? Be grateful I have the asset and the means to keep it going. And that makes everything better. Smile on my face and send people over, get it fixed, and tenants thank me for it. So, no, I try and be the best landlord I can be. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Let's talk about for the, the new guys starting out, because that is, that is you know, I'm fortunate I'm in that position. I had a couple of folks that um, came down with COVID. I just told them, look, don't pay for rent. I'm going to forgive it. I'm not even going to ask for it later, right? it's But that's easy to do later, right? When you're first getting started and you're first taking down your deals and you're leveraged, and all the rest, like, it's pretty hard to say, hey, don't, you know, I, I got this. Don't worry about it, right? With a tenant. And um, so how do you, do you, I mean, it's 39 years ago. So maybe you don't remember at this point, but how do you make that, how does the new guy make that transition, right? How how do they get to the point where they've got enough reserves and can really take care of their tenants and the rest?
1: Well, I was, thinking, as you were explaining the scenario there, Sean, I'm going back to, my first nine rental houses. I was still renting a bedroom in a house for $150 a month, and I had nine rental houses, none of which I could afford to live in myself. And so I was provide, providing better housing than I had. But of course, that was Mick Blackwell telling me how to get this done, and it, it's tough. But I used to do a lot of my own repairs. I thought that's that was the old school. That's the way Mick did it. So it's the way I did it. And he just grab the tools and fix stuff, and that not that much stuff broke it was my could have been my downfall was tenant turnover not um picking the right tenants early on i got sent to school on that one time after another after another and i just getting it gets old when you're putting white paint and beige carpet in the same house for the third time in 3 years the first time it's fun second time's aggravating and the third time can be depressing so yeah. it's um but Don't go too fast, too far. This is, as far as building your empire goes, very methodical, piece at a time. Take care of today's cash flow needs before you worry about your future wealth. I see people go way out on a limb and not having reserves and just taking on assets to where I think, nope, there's got to be a balance there. You got to be able to prepare for disaster and for more than one house. So you've always got to have some reserves.
2: (laughs) Now, did you always use wholesale and flipping to fund the the rentals? Or did you were those first nine rentals where you just somehow talked a bank into loaning you the money and going for it?
1: None of none of my first nine rentals had anything to do with the bank. See, Sean, I've never been much of a bank borrower because I've never had a real job. I got some advice early on. It was, I was told when you go into the bank, stay off the carpet because that's where you go into debt. Stay on the tile and make your deposits and everything will work out fine. <laughs> and I, I, I've adhered to that. I stay off the carpet at the bank. I think in my whole real estate career, I might have done a grand total of nine bank loans. I don't think I ever hit double digits. And out of the 1,600 plus transactions, 10 of them involved the bank. And the only bank loan that I have right now is, I have one, and it's on my daughter's house. It's been around for 17 years, and it's a good loan and fixed rate. And I thought, okay, 13 more years or add some principal to it. But that's the only bank loan I have.
2: Wow. And so how did you acquire those first nine rentals if it wasn't bank loan?
1: Um, Most of them were either subject to existing debt. Uh, A lot of it was seller financing. Some of it was private money and some of it was hard money. So it was all the non-conventional sources there.
2: All right. All right. And like I
1: said, I did lots of creative stuff, Sean. I just, I didn't have borrowing power and I didn't have a bunch of money. So if you have a dream, you got to figure out how do we make this work? And that, that became my MO. I took over lots and lots of loans. Um, FHA stuff used to be really easy. Just pay the $45 and sign a one page application thing. And you were in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The assumption thing was, was good. So just, I want to explain what subject two is for folks really quick out there. Um, subject two is buying the the property subject to their existing mortgage. So you leave the current mortgage in place and um, that has gotten, it, it, you know, back in what the, 80s, you could you could assume loans. And that really isn't the case anymore. Most mortgages today have something called a due on sale clause, which means that if the person transfers the house to you, that triggers the loan being payable in full. Now it doesn't mean you maybe can't make the payments for them for months or years, but um, there is some risk there. Um, was that less of an issue? you know, back when you got started, the subject too? Is it more of an issue now or any
1: well, Joan, I'm, the, I'm the only person I know that's ever had three loans called due because of the due on sale clause. They were all unique circumstances, but they were fairly early on. And I did have them called due and I worked around it. I sold one of the properties. I rounded up the money to pay off the other two. But in today's climate, Um, I have friends that have taken a couple of hundred loans subject to none of them have had anything called due with today's interest rates at two and a half percent. If the banks get any, anything more than that 3% plus, why on earth would they foreclose go through the hassle only to ultimately end up with money to loan out at a lower interest rate? It makes no sense. Now I could see if rates went through the roof, there might be some incentive to call that stuff, but um, it's a tool. And I, like I said, I, Nobody, no, nobody in my circle has ever had one called due.
2: So if you're gonna do it, be ready for that possibility. But um, it, it can be a useful, a useful tool. Okay.
1: Yes, and, and I, I had, a, I had a loan. I tried to get a bank to call it due because it had a prepayment penalty. I didn't want to pay, and I did everything I could do to torment them into calling it due, and they refused. They said, "No, <laughs> you pay it off, you're going to pay that prepayment penalty one way or the other." So even if you <laughs>
0: Even if you want them to, they won't.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Oh, that's great. Considering the market that you like to market to, the landlords, absentee, it, has COVID been a, a moment where we're finding out the tide has come back and are we finding who's been swimming naked uh, as you're marketing to them? Or do you have a lot of landlords in distress right now?
1: Uh, it, it all depends where their stuff is, Aaron. and And that's the, once again, it comes back to well-located real estate. Um, I have a friend that had 20 some odd houses in a not so good area, an outlying area. And I believe in March, out of the 26, he collected four rents. In April, he collected one and hasn't seen a dime since then. And oh. it, it was the location and the type of person that it attracted. So that has a whole lot to do with it. And I know the lower end stuff, people are struggling. They're going to do what they have to do. And they're not opposed to moving. It's a good house with an older family in it that's been there a while. Last thing they want to do is change school districts and unpack a two-car garage. So it's the product and the location.
0: Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Now, early on, I remember interviewing you and you did not like multifamily. You were really an SFR guy. Has that changed? I, mean, I,
1: I Nope. I'm still, I'm still the single family guy. The only multifamily that I have is two duplexes, downtown Huntington Beach in an A-plus neighborhood the block from Main Street and Coast Highway. It's two duplexes. I occupy one of the duplexes, my daughter on the other side. And two very good friends in the other unit, which just makes for a great environment. If I didn't have the two friends in the other units, they may may have sat vacant for it forever because that's my weekend place and it's my lifestyle but other than the two duplexes i'm still single family i want more than two by four and drywall separating unrelated families that i'm responsible for and i I just don't like doing adult daycare and it's a different mentality in a unit mix than it is a single family my experience is single family people want to be left alone and get on with life. And the units that I've had, the tenants seem to want me to do everything right down to changing light bulbs.
2: Yeah. 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 No, that's a really interesting, um, point. Uh, you know, it does seem like you get more turnover, like the apartments, like a stopping point for people, like something they have to do for a period of time, but not something they want to do for a long time. And I've had a couple of exceptions to that, but, but largely that seems to be more of a, a temporary solution, whereas the single family homes like people, it becomes their home, right? And they want to stay and they want to stay for a long time. And if you treat them fairly, they'll
1: stay forever <laughs> 20, well, I, 30, 20, 50
2: years, apparently.
1: I, I told the tenant in Montclair the other day, I'm having a bunch of work done there. We had a block wall blow over in November in the high winds, mm-hmm. and my insurance didn't pay for it, so I had to have the wall removed fence put up and figured okay it's been 20 years it's time to do some work on that house and sherry was all concerned that her rent was going to go way up and i told her that's not the game plan that she's been a great occupant as far as i'm concerned she'd spend the rest of her life in that house just stay on board with the program pay the rent on time and we're good
0: wow that's great that's awesome. great um has your, has your marketing mix changed You've been doing direct mail for a long time, but I I don't remember seeing a YouTube channel by Mike Cantu just yet.
1: Nope, and I I'm still so electronically challenged, Aaron. You know that. Um, I I I did learn how to forward a text message picture, but I have still yet to send an email. I mean that's every day I go in my office and there's a stack of emails. Kim sorts through them, thinks what's a, what I would deem to be important prints it out i sort that over the trash can then i handwrite write my reply on on the actual paper and i slide the stack back to kim and she takes it from there the text messages that i do on my phone i typically write down what i want on the yellow tablet put my phone on it slide it to kim tell her to make it happen she does i've got fat fingers and wear reading glasses so i could never text well i Probably could on my own, but I, I think of me struggling at the kitchen table to send a text message, and I think how would you do that driving? I'd be in the ditch in ten seconds. So, nope. I, I still operate with a yellow tablet, a pen, and a telephone.
2: Let's talk a little bit about and one of the things that I think is most challenging for folks doing direct mail, doing any of these ad campaigns, and they get that phone call, right? And the person's interested, and you know and this is where your uh, your, your, your um, surviving real estate island uh, series was so good was talking about how to handle that call and because I think that's really hard for folks right you get that call and what do you say how do you you know how do you move from a call of okay i'm I may be interested in selling to like a closed deal
1: um Sean every conversation is different and I want to get a few things out of the way real quick. One of the first questions, once we get past the introduction and shallow, meaningless chit chat, I I always ask them, is there any interest in the possibility of selling that house? And I'm always surprised when people say, no, not really. I just want to see what you're up to and what you thought it might be worth and blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the point. Are you a seller or not? Once we get past that, then I, did, I, I would want to ask some questions, paint a picture. I always ask people, what would they like to see happen? Paint a picture for me. And quite often, it's very unrealistic. And if that's the case, I usually ask them, what's your second choice? And I try and keep the conversation going. I'm on a fact-finding mission. And I rarely, rarely can somebody pry a number out of me during our first phone call. And I have several friends that operate totally different than that, that they're throwing out numbers within five minutes of being on the phone because they're computer people and they've got two screens that are split screens and they've got all the valuation sites up and driving the Google car past the house and they see everything going on. I don't operate like that. I don't think that quick. I just want all the info. I assure them that I will do my homework and get back with them either this afternoon or tomorrow morning. And if it's a good, Phone call. I'll drop what I'm doing, do the homework, and construct and present an offer to them. So it it all depends on how the call goes, but that's the important one. Nothing happens without the phone call. But how much of that
2: call are you talking versus listening?
1: It all depends, Sean. Sometimes I think I'll start talking, and I think, wait a minute, I started talking, and I can't shut up. I wonder what I just said, and (laughs) that, but it all depends how the conversation starts out. I had people just go and go and go to where I'm taking a couple of pages of notes. And I think, okay, I don't have any questions after that. They had a whole monologue and I've got some great notes out of it. So once again, I, I realized Sean, we're in the people business. And first and foremost, I mean, I rent to people, I sell to people, I buy from people and I'm constantly going back to the people store for new people and whatever needs to be done that it's the people business first and foremost. And of course, everyone's different. So it it all depends. It depends how it starts out. I've led people by the hand. I felt like I was the student and they were the teacher more than once. Um, I've had some great deals where the sellers did all the talking. One that comes to mind was several years ago. I had made a deal for 80,000 cash on a house in Pomona and was so excited about it. I meet the seller there. He was about eighty-five. And he was almost seven feet tall. He put his arm around me and we're walking around the backyard in waist deep grass. And he told me he can't take 80 cash. And I thought, okay, hear him out before I get upset over it. He said, I've got two sons and they'll just piss the money away. Or he called them his kids. And I said, How old are your kids? He said, 58 and 62. And he said, they'll just piss the money away. Here's what I want. I'd like 10% down, and I'd like you to make me monthly payments for 10 years and 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 to where we ended up with a great terms deal, but no change in price. Well. And that was all his idea. It was all his idea after we had made a deal. And I thought, once again, I love real estate. And- so it, it, I, I didn't say much in that whole deal other than my initial offer. And he said, sounds good. Uh, let's meet and see what you're getting yourself into.
0: Oh, that's great. <laughs> Are you finding a lot of landlords these days wanting to do those kind of creative finance deals?
1: It, it all depends on the circumstance or in Aaron. Um, I, people tell me people don't do seller financing. I bought a property four months ago that... Um, I had to clean up some liens and stuff, but the seller carried the balance at zero interest for five years. And I thought I've got 60 payments and that place is paid for It's a break even until then. But I just asked him, would you take $550 a month till paid in full? And he said, absolutely. How many years has that come to? And I said, right about five. And that once again, that was something I hadn't planned on keeping, but I thought with zero interest financing, that falls into the, the tool category that it's a tool to get something paid off. I'm going to hang on to it. It came with the tenant. I thought, you know, this isn't such a bad scenario.
0: I like the way you phrased that too. You didn't mention an interest rate. It was a payment. Right. Absolutely. You're one of the most uh, consistent people I know you're, are you still doing the hour a day learning?
1: Absolutely. Aaron. See, I tweaked my back good a year ago. March, and it took five weeks of going to the chiropractor and acupuncture, and I have a great book. It's called The Better Back Book, and I would look at it and swear if I ever got upright, I would exercise every day, and today is day number 289 without missing a day, but I break it up in the morning. It takes about a half an hour, and then the evening's about an hour. All of the evening stuff is on an exercise mat. It's stretching, but when I do that, I either listen to a cassette tape, yes, I have hundreds and hundreds of them, in a cassette player to where I'm finding golden stuff that I hadn't listened to in years, or YouTube videos, and it's all in two categories. It's either personal development, build a better mic, or adding to my real estate toolbox. So for 289 days, I've had an hour plus of education every day. And I still read an hour a day, and that's typically 20 to 30 pages. I like to absorb what I read, I don't skim much, so um, absolutely, and that keeps me fired up. See, I'm you know, I'm a huge fan of education, I attribute to where I'm at 100% because of the education. And I ask people all the time, Did you eat breakfast today? Did you eat lunch today? Well, of course, I did. And I asked them what they ate. And I said, okay, you got your physical nutrition. Tell me about your mental nutrition. And our mind and our body are two entirely different things. And why would you starve your mind of nutrition and just feed your body? That makes no sense whatsoever. So no, you need your mental nutrition every day to keep you fired up. And it's the alternative thought processes that have made for a very interesting life that you're not exposed to in school. And you got to go searching for that.
2: Let's follow that up with, are there any um, any favorites? Obviously, your own. Don't get voted off Real Estate Island. And I want to ask you if people can still get that, and if so, where?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's at um, go to MikeCantu.com. I claim to have the worst website on the internet. It was made many years ago, and all that's there is my two courses, and, yes, I, I've always been amazed that I still sell several courses a month. I've done zero advertising. It's all been word of mouth. And I know Kim's got a couple of boxes of both courses. And when they run low, she orders up some new ones. But they're still there. Now, I, I do want to make a comment. Are you about still on that. cassette tape or you, you do offer? Uh... <laughs> now, it's on CD, but Gary Johnston – He's been a fan of those and he teaches. And when he teaches, he always sells my stuff. Now I believe they put them on a MP3 or on a stick or something, whatever the technology people use these days. Um, He has brought it into the 21st century. So it's, if you order it from Kim, it's coming on CDs. Gary Johnston has the high-tech version of it. I don't even know how to explain it.
2: (laughs) Okay. So other things, what, But. uh, you mentioned you've got quite a few. Any uh, recommendations for uh, top recommendations for real estate investors, folks that want to be Mike someday?
1: It, it, it all, yes. And I'm going to go off in different categories. See, Jack Miller was my hero. I learned more from Jack over 25 years. I used to fly all over the United States, wherever he was teaching, I would be there. And I would typically get four to six, maybe seven of Jack's classes a year. They're always different topics. I couldn't wait for a schedule, but Jack's been gone a dozen years and it's hard to find his stuff. I love John Schaub out of Florida from the landlording standpoint. I tell people John's stuff is golden, that it's, it's a bargain and to buy everything that he sells. That um, he's kind of been like a real estate dad influencing me in the rental game. Um, I love Bruce Norris's stuff. I've got a big section of my library of Bruce's stuff. I think I have everything the Norris group's ever put out and gone to just about every class I've ever done. Um, I love Pete Fortunato out of Florida, creative problem solver, thinking outside the box. I've learned a ton from Pete over the years. And um, I'm still a Ron Legrand fan. He opened my eyes to... I've known Ron, oh, probably 30 years now, and I didn't follow him for quite some time. He kind of went off in the commercial arena, and but going back through his old stuff, I realized, no, this this was part of the basis of my business model. I learned it from him, and I'm getting a kick out of re-listening to cassette tapes, but I always wondered, every time I did a great deal, I thought it was an anomaly, and this was the last time, and that I kept getting lucky, and Legrand changed my attitude about that that no they're like buses showing up at the bus stop they come every 5 minutes if you're searching for it i mean seldom do we find what we're not looking for and you've got to define <laughs> the product that you want and then go looking for it and i i've searched for that for years and talk back to some marketing um i've always gone after the what not the who that had the what and Finding out that there was a pattern with the who, I, one of my marketing campaigns is going after the who, not the what. If that right. makes any sense, the person, not yeah, the yeah. product.
2: Yeah. No, that's that's uh, uh, we we think a lot about that, right? In terms of the message and stuff, what the message that works for one person won't work for the next person. So thinking about that who part, I think is important for sure.
1: Yeah. Yes, and as soon as you get the who on the phone, the next job is to. Is this a property problem or a people problem? It's usually one of the two, seldom is it both. And so I try and define that. Well, what what are we out to solve here? People problem or property problem? Do you have a favorite? Oh, that's
2: interesting. Give us a couple examples of a people problem and a property problem.
1: Property problem, they don't have the money to fix it. Let's use a probate for an example. We've got code enforcement and it's just a matter of time. It's a deteriorating asset. That's a property problem, a people problem. Is when they've got a drug problem, a divorce problem. Um, it can be a whole long list of people problems, but they're not capable of continuing ownership of the property.
2: Yeah, and you see Sorry. that with the landlords too. You get landlords that are in those situations with the with the you know. You think about homeowners getting themselves in over the you know skis or whatever, but you're focusing on landlords. So landlords are struggling with these. These people oh, and property problems as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, like I said, Sean, ninety-nine point nine percent of what I buy is landlord landlord material, and they fall into those two categories: people problem or property problem. Um, the deal I closed on yesterday, lady had inherited it ten years ago, lives nine hours away in Northern California, and has never seen the house. Yeah, And she just collected, she collected a thousand dollars a month rent, which is about half of what it should be. Yeah. And yep. She was behind on maintenance, behind on taxes, just behind on everything. And I thought this is turning into a property problem for her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And she probably, you know, she probably could use the thousand dollars a month, but maybe didn't have the money to come in and fix all those
1: issues or the time. She's much, much more excited over the slab of money being wired to her account today. That was <laughs> a, or that was life-changing money for her. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Awesome.
0: Do you have a favorite people or property problem?
1: Um yeah, a good house in a good neighborhood for cheap. And that doesn't doesn't matter what the problem is if we can work <laughs> it out. As That's long the as problem. they're happy and I, I like it. So no, it's all good.
0: Just like problems.
1: Well, yeah, nobody, Nobody's giving away a house without some kind of challenge in there. I've always said nobody will give away equity. They will trade it for peace of mind. They will trade it for a lot of things, but they just aren't going to hand it to you. And I've still yet to buy a perfect house in an a neighborhood for 70 cents on the dollar minus repairs. That That has never happened in my world. There's always something in there that I've got to clean up.
2: Every guru, though, promises like you shouldn't even consider it unless it's 70 cents on the dollar after repairs. And, uh, you know, and and you should be able to get those all day long. Right.
1: And and Sean, I, I, I still in 39 years haven't had the gift wrapped half price bargain set on my porch that would qualify as a keeper house. It just. The A neighborhood stuff I bought, it's been problem properties that they've needed work. And a good deal usually comes with some hair on it. And I learned a long time ago, my real job title is chief problem solver. Whether I'm in landlord mode, entrepreneur mode, whatever mode I'm in, my job is to solve problems and make decisions.
2: We, uh, you know, we've helped tens of thousands of investors over the years and, 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 we always know we're in trouble, like when their their first call on support is, well, I've looked at 10 properties, you know, or I, I sent direct mail to a hundred properties and I haven't been able to find one that I can buy for 70 cents on the dollar after repairs. And I don't think your software is any good, or I don't think your data is any good it's
1: like oh man and, and Sean that boils down to belief i if you think you can you're right and if you think you can't you're right and I've always been a bubbling optimist life continually beats me down into becoming a realist but it bubbles right back up to where I'm I just i'm very optimistic and always have been so I'm looking for solutions and the bright side of things and I hear it all the time this business is hard I'm struggling I can't Make a deal. And I think, you know, that's a lot to do with attitude. And what have you done to build your real estate toolbox up? And are you actively pursuing your education to overcome this stuff?
2: So I think we both know that, right, a 30% after repairs isn't really realistic. That's not the kind of deal that happens out there. Like for somebody new coming into this business, you know, what what kind of realistic target should they expect? Like what's what's a what's a a good, but doable deal. Like what's a deal that if somebody really works hard, they can do four or five, 10 of a year.
1: It, it, Okay. Now, Sean, when you say a deal, are you looking to flip stuff or are you looking to keep stuff? And those two deals are going to be structured different, differently. Now, see, I, I'm in the equity business and I've always said I'm an equity purchaser, no equity, no deal. And there's a whole world of slim equity business out there taking over good loans, Um, There's a lot of people that will pay a premium because they can't get a bank loan, but they'll pay over market with cash down payment to an existing loan if it can be structured for them that way because they don't have borrowing ability. I know more people can't borrow bank money than can. So it all depends on what you're out to accomplish. And once again, Sean, I'm still buying at 70 cents on the dollar. The deal I closed yesterday, that's a 475 plus built in 1977 that i paid 275 for it and it might need 30 if it was empty so that certainly meets the 70 cents on the dollar
2: oh so they do you you are finding them
1: oh yeah and the other one that i'm keeping i almost embarrassed to say it's slightly below 50 cents on the dollar and i i thought i i don't need to flip this that I, I play a game every month, Sean, and I, I play lots of games with myself. Um, like you're not allowed to get in the shower till you've done your first half of exercise, rule number one. And I was struggling this morning, but I pulled it off. But <laughs> I, I, I play lots of games, and I, as a real estate entrepreneur, I compete against my net rents. So I go to work every month as a human being, trying trying to outearn the net rents that the houses produce. Sometimes I do. Most of the times I don't, but I, I look at what the inventory that I buy. I mean, all, all, everything ends up in one of two checkbooks at my place. So all of the proceeds of the game end up at home, but more often than not, I don't beat my rents anymore. I used to, but as the rents increased, it become harder and harder unless I have a whopper month that doesn't happen. But Still, the stuff I'm buying and wholesaling, my buyers have strict criteria, and most of them are in the mid-70s, $0.75 cents on the dollar minus repairs. So if I'm going to make a wholesale fee, I got to come in less than that. And some of wow. the junk that I buy, Sean, I buy some of the junk at 30 $0.40 cents on the dollar, and I pass it on at $0.50 cents on the dollar, but you're going to spend some money making it work.
2: All right. Got real problems.
1: Yeah. and And, and I... Some people are out there looking for a 20 grand net, net, net spread after everything. And it doesn't matter if it's a hundred thousand dollar house or a $300,000 house. I totally disagree with that philosophy. I want the risk and reward to be in line with each other. And if I'm doing a $400,000 house, I certainly want a bigger payday than the hundred.
0: Agreed. Well, we are at that time, Mark. We need to let you go, but is there anything you're really excited about or opportunity you see in 2021?
1: Um yeah, I, I see it's either gonna be really good or it's gonna be really bad. Now uh, see, you know, Aaron, I have nailed it one hundred percent of the time on predictions for the market. I've never been wrong, not one time. And I'm not going to be wrong this time because the market does one of three things. It's either going to go up, down, or stay the same. And that just nailed it. That's what's going to happen. And you need to govern yourself accordingly so that all three scenarios work for you. But I don't think the stay the same part is going to be there. I think we're either going to have a great year or we're going to have a challenging year. I don't think it's going to be middle of the road. I'm optimistic about it, but I'm also prepared for the downside if that happens. But as long as I can keep making deals, life's good.
0: That's awesome. Very good. I will make sure to uh, post the links. I'm going to look at Jerry uh, Gary Johnson's website to see if the technology advanced version of your book is on uh, one of his sites. Um, I okay. know him all well too. So I really appreciate your time. As always, it's been great.
1: I can't you, believe man. an hour went by. We were just getting started here. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was good talking to you, Aaron. Uh, you're looking good these days. And Sean, likewise, we haven't chatted in a while. I uh, really enjoyed it, you guys. Well,
0: Thanks nice. so much. Thank you for listening to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that, join the community, and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.